for the Molly Maguires. They're drinkers, they're liars, but they're men. Make way for the Molly Maguires. You'll never see the likes of them again. Down the mines, no sunlight shines. The pits as black as hell. The trials of the Molly Maguires resulted in the largest act of mass execution in American history. It was a calculated uh, genocide directed toward Irish Catholic immigrants at a time that it was fashionable uh, politically and socially in this country to uh, uh, be anti-Catholic. The Know Nothing uh, Party was an official political party in the United States. Uh, the there were riots uh, in the eighteen late eighteen forties and eighteen fifties in Philadelphia, which burned, among other things, St. Augustine's Church uh, right down the street here. It was a time when there was no uh, uh, anti discrimination, no uh, fair employment legislation, and uh, the uh, Irish who uh, were in Pennsylvania. Uh, came here and were uh, exploited in various types of hard labor, the mines being one of them. They were the earliest leaders of the labor movement of America. They were the original leaders of the American. Out of the mine of the Molly Maguires came Johnny Mitchell, of the who was an Irish from Ireland, who led the mine workers, who established the mine workers, and then out of that came John O'Lewis, and all these people. Bill Green came from the miners. All these people who lead and established the labor movement in America were an offspring of those people. When the wind blows wild and wide at the break of melancholy, if you stand in the dark with your ears to the wind, you can hear the sons of Molly. Deep in the dark of the owl mine shaft, you can smell the smoke and the fire and the whisper low in the mines below it's the ghost of Molly Maguire Whether there ever was an authentic Molly Maguire who gave her name to the activists of the Pennsylvania coalfields a hundred years ago is a matter of much doubt but the Mollies do have a connection with the ribbon men of the early part of the last century and with the secret societies which sprang from them on the other side of the Atlantic Sean Cronin of New York has done a great deal of research on this period of American history. I read up as much as I could, and I found that most accounts were hostile. They were regarded as killers, murderers, terrorists, and so on. And uh, even the Irish, you could find out very, very little. Because the Molly Maguires, as it turned out, were miners. And the only organization at that time that the Irish immigrants used was the Ancient Order Hibernians. When they came here, the immigrant would join an ancient order of Hibernian Lodge. And, in fact, this great conspiracy in eastern Pennsylvania called the Molly Maguires was totally permeated through and through with the AOH, which was often called the Mollies, <coughs> and was made to appear as some sort of a conspiracy. 
Uh, when I would raise, I would go to libraries in these small mining towns, and usually the, it seems to me the population changed after what happened to Molly Maguire's. These mine owners had to get labor, and they usually went to Europe for that labor, and they imported them a great number of Slovaks, Poles, I think, and perhaps some Germans. At any rate, the people, the descendants of these people, had a fearful idea of what the Molly Maguires were all about. And you could not find in a library any accounts. And American libraries, I have to point out, are very thorough. Uh, if anything happened in a town, and if a book has been published, they go out of their way. They are professional librarians, and they go to enormous uh, extent of cost and so on to get these books. Yet nothing on the Mollies existed. And when I went to one library, the librarian said to me, if we had anything, it would not be in the history section, it would be in the crime section. And then I talked to a professor at a university man who lived in his father, he was a coal miner's son, and he lived in the coal mining shack <clears throat> that he had grown up in, but uh, he had changed the insides, made it a summer home and so on. And we had a long conversation about it. And he told me that his understanding was that many of the Irish had been driven out of the eastern Pennsylvania after the hangings. Remember, there were 20 Irish. I often consider this a remarkable thing. If you add up the number that were executed by Britain in the 19th century in Ireland, apart from Robert Emmett's uh, rebellion, it was not a great number until you come to the Manchester Martyrs and a few others. But at one in two-year period in America, the land of opportunity for the Irish, 20 Irish were hanged. And evidence that we now know was largely falsified. I'm not saying everybody maybe didn't deserve. I'm not a judge. But quite clearly, uh, this was an extraordinary occurrence. It's impossible to fully comprehend and understand the Molly Maguire trials unless you understand a little bit about the political and social climate at that time. There was an election in Pennsylvania in 1875 for governor of Pennsylvania. The candidate of the Democratic Party was an anti-labor, anti-Catholic, anti-black judge by the name of Cyrus Pershing, who had, had a very undistinguished term in the state legislature. Cyrus Pershing voted against President Lincoln's freeing of the slaves. He voted against the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, very basic uh, due process uh, cornerstones in our system of jurisprudence in this country. Uh, judge Pershing was uh, an anti-labor uh, judge. He ran for governor in 1875 as the hand-picked candidate of the mining and railroad interests. The Irish miners, who were usually Democrats, uh, voted Republican in that election, and Pershing lost the election by 10,000 votes. It would be unheard of today and unthinkable for a judge like Pershing to then subsequently preside over the uh, trials uh, of the miners, uh, which he did. Uh, Pershing was the judge who uh, presided over these trials. These were kangaroo uh, trials. Uh, they created a special uh, judicial district. Instead of just picking the jurors from Schuylkill County, or from the other counties where the uh, alleged incidents took place. They grafted onto Schuylkill County a special judicial district which included Schuylkill County, 
plus Lebanon County. Lebanon County is a county in Pennsylvania uh, which is predominantly, even till this day, uh, German. Uh, many of the jurors, all the jurors, uh, were selected uh, from areas uh, which had an anti-Catholic bias. All Catholic names and all Irish names were stricken from the list of the, uh, the jurors. Many of the jurors were not citizens. Some of the jurors could not speak English. Indeed, there was a juror by the name of Levi Stein who asked the... Uh, right in the court record, uh, asked the the prosecutor if he could go slow and speak in German because he couldn't understand English. This is the type of jury they wanted. It was a hanging jury. The fate of the minors was preordained even before the trials. The trials were merely uh, public relations uh, 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 strategies to really clean up the dirty work, namely the hanging of the minors and the breaking of the strike. John Elliott, the Philadelphia attorney who last year obtained a full posthumous pardon for the leader of the Molly Maguires, Blackjack Kehoe. Also from Philadelphia is John Morris, grandson of a convicted Molly, now business manager of a big Teamster union representing industrial workers and public employees. My father's family were 12, and his father was a mine worker who attempted to organize mine workers back in 1870 and under terrible conditions of poverty and sickness and exploitation by the mine owners and railroads and as a result of their effort to try to uplift them in the standard of living they were tagged at that particular time our government didn't protect workers Uh, they consider any kind of a meeting of a worker at that time a conspiracy against the government and the mine owners were allowed to hire their own private army, their own police force. Uh, they exploited the worker, and as a result, the miners get into a secret organization, and they call themselves the Molly Maguires. And in their effort to, uh, to increase their standard of living and their help, they went against the greatest forces of this country. At no time in America was there ever a, civ- a, a civilian uh, court trial that resulted in the uh, hanging of 19 miners. The man who was uh, the uh, chief mine owner was a man named Francis B. Gowan. Uh, Gowan's people came from the north of Ireland and he knew a great deal about uh, the ribbon organizations of the Irish countryside and uh, Gowan was the man who hired McParland. Gowan was also the uh, district attorney for uh, Schuylkill County, which is one of the counties in eastern Pennsylvania, and as well as being a mine owner and a financier. And furthermore, <clears throat> he was the leading Democratic politician in eastern Pennsylvania. And he was challenged, and this seems to me to be the theory behind the thing, he was challenged on two levels. In the 1870s in America, there was a vast depression. And uh, the great boom of the Civil War period was ending. So they wanted to cut down miners' wages. There were strikes all over. The Irish miners organized themselves as a secret organization. Gowan wanted to smash it and drive them out. And he hired the Pinkertons for that purpose. The second thing was that financially, his company itself was in danger. Uh, He had built up not merely the mines, but the rails that ran the coal into New York and into the markets and his entire financial thing was teetering 
his uh, shareholders were largely English. So you had a combination transferred to the new world of the struggle in the old world in Ireland, of the landlords and of the English and so on and so forth. And <clears throat> in effect, that's the way it seemed to come out. In American politics, he was being challenged by Keogh, Jack Keogh, who was uh, called colloquially the king of the Mollies. He was a leading AOH man. He had been a miner. He bought a tavern in 1861. And eventually Gowan wanted Keogh. He wanted to have him executed. And MacParlane, they were able to work it that he was charged with a death uh, for which somebody else, in fact, I think had been convicted or that was... This man had died after a beating. He was a coal boss who was responsible for the peace raids. The murder of the unpopular mine foreman Frank W. Langdon, for which Kehoe was hanged in 1878, had occurred in 1862. In the years between, there were numerous other acts of violence, directed mostly against mine superintendents and the heavies they employed to intimidate the Irish workers. John Morris again. Well, my grandfather it was charged with... Uh shooting a, a, a person called Bully Bull Thomas. He was a professional fighter. He came from Welsh background. His job was, it appeared very definite, was to beat up on the Irish peasants for the mine owners. And as a result of beating up on the peasants, he did that three or four times a week in the center of the town and terrorized them. And my grandfather... John Morris, uh, another man named young man named John Hurley, and another name a young uh, young fellow named Mike Doyle, and another miner named John Gibbons, uh, was charged with attempt on of attempt murder of Bully Bull Thomas, and they were charged with killing attempting his uh, kill him in a mule stable. And he was, they later were, were identified by uh, Thomas and other people. Uh, the week of the period when they were being tried, uh, Thomas killed a waitress. Thomas was instrumental in killing a young girl named, uh, was married to Friday O'Donnell. Uh, Thomas had a whole history of violence, a thug, and he was the coal company's thug and the likes of him. And they had a group in that town in, in the, that town that they called the Murdochs. They were Pennsylvania Dutch and partly um, a Protestant background. And these group, this Murdoch group, was siding with, with Thomas, a Welsh. And they used to bring as much violence on the Irish miners as they could bear. It got to the point where the mine, the mine workers and could no longer bear the, the kind of uh, violence that he was bringing on them, and they made plans to stop him. And that is where it came into play, where my grandfather was charged in attempted murder of uh, Bully Bull Thomas. There were four other mine workers with him who were charged with it. Uh, he was charged with a conspiracy to uh, kill uh, Thomas. He was convicted and, and sent to prison. And I'd like to point out again, that while they were being tried, they ran their coffins through towns. Um, nobody at, at all were allowed to associate with them. Uh, the miners that were hung, 
their graves had no identification because they were uh, they were not allowed to have any identification. They were buried away from their homes. Uh, the during the process of the trial of my grandfather, as um, as the records will indicate, that seven around the jury couldn't speak English, didn't know what was going on, and he had no money. Uh, the trial was just uh, shammed through, quickly tried and and convicted. If the Molly Maguires were pretty ruthless in disposing of their enemies. The mine bosses and the Pinkerton Detective Agency certainly had their own ideas about ensuring law and order. A well-organised vengeance killing involving in particular the O'Donnell family living near Mahanoy City took place in 1875. Joe Wayne from Girardville. We're in a little village called Wigans, W-E-I-G-A-N-S Patch, which is very historical during the Molly Maguire era because here took place the infamous Wigans Massacre where Jack Kehoe's brother-in-law, Charles O'Donnell, 18 years of age, and his sister-in-law, Ellen O'Donnell McAllister, who was 21 years of age and pregnant, were slaughtered. Uh, he also had his mother-in-law, Granny O'Donnell, pistol-whipped by a vigilante group known as the Modocs, M-O-D-O-C-S. That is a group which you very seldom see referenced by any of the authors of uh, the Molly Maguire era, and very little work has ever been done to try to find out as to who was behind it, except the fact that it was often referenced to as a Welsh vigilante group. What took place here in a home on your left is a, it's a double home, a company home erected by the various coal companies to house their employees. They rented the homes themselves on a, uh, for a dollar a month and were subject to the whims of the company. If they should step out of line, they could be evicted at a moment's notice. On the left side was the O'Donnell family. On the right side was the McAllister. Ellen O'Donnell married James McAllister. One particular evening, there was a commotion on the bottom floor which aroused the inhabitants. James McAllister informed his wife to stay where she was till he went down to find out what the noise was about. When he didn't return immediately, she came down the steps and apparently frightened one of the vigilante members who turned around and fired a bullet right into her stomach, killing she and the baby she was carrying. The braid she was wearing uh, caught on a nail on the wall and she was suspended in somewhat of a grotesque fashion, which is how she was found then by her mother. When she ripped the mask off the fellow and identified him as their butcher by the name of Wendrick, W-E-I-N-R-I-C-H, she asked Butcher Wendrick, how could you? And before he could even reply, a fellow pointed a gun at her and was apparently ready to shoot her down when someone said, we don't shoot women. They pushed the gun aside, but the fellow still was intent to do damage, and he pistol-whipped her across the face, knocking her to the floor. During the ensuing melee, you had James McAllister, who was apprehended by the vigilantes and had a rope around his neck, a boarder who was unknown who stayed in the premise at the time and was apparently let go because he was identified as not being wanted, and you had Charles O'Donnell, the young man who was killed. McAllister made a break for the front door, and we later found was shot in the right arm, as was reported in the local paper, the Shenandoah Herald, as he was treated by a doctor in Mahanoy City. Young Charles O'Donnell was shot in the chest. Charles ran towards what they described as a Pollock's house, which you can see on the right, another company home, in the dead of night. They didn't know if it was Charles O'Donnell or James Friday O'Donnell that they, that they wounded. But to make sure that they completed their task, they ran after him and fired 15 more bullets at point-blank range into the body, which ignited the bedclothing he was wearing. The body was almost burnt beyond recognition. 
and was finally identified by Kehoe when he came to the house and asked what happened. When Kehoe realized what group was behind this, he told the family to say no more about it, he would handle it. The story that we are told by our family was that Kehoe was afraid that they were trying to extract an eye for an eye and eventually they would wipe out any opposition they had to the cold barons themselves. So nothing ever really came of the fact that the two, two people and the unborn child were murdered. No one was ever brought to trial and no one ever did anything as far as Butcher Wendrick was concerned. My grandfather was born in America, but his father was born in Mayo in Ireland. And they came to America and they settled in a little town called Jenkintown, right outside of uh, uh, Wilkesbury, PA, and they became miners. And it was considered at that particular time, if you supported the mine workers and you supported, at that time, most of your union people were Irish. Most of your union leaders at that time were Irish. And they, it was a great hardship that was on the miners in those years. Uh, uh, the mine company owned their house. The mine company uh, paid their salary in mine money. They call it strip company money. The mine company owned the store. Uh, you had to buy your clothes and everything from the mine company. And after you paid the mine company off, you had nothing. You had to buy your equipment, your tools. And it was just the worst exploitation, that the, the, one of the worst that the history of this government. And they did it in a secret manner, try to prevent and try to organize to against the railroads and the mine companies. And as a result of that, the powerful railroads and the powerful mine companies discredit them. And the way they, they said they were terrorists, uh, they, uh, they were involved in uh, violence, and they were involved in all these things. But the real violence was against the worker. The worst violence was the silent violence of poverty and sickness and exploitation that their children, uh, my grandfather, my father, uh, of, of, as I said, came from a family of 12. He was taken out of his home when he was only nine years old and put on a slate bank. And What's a slate bank? That's to pick the slate off the uh, coal. And young boys uh, between seven, uh, and this is not an exaggeration, seven to maybe 12 years old, uh, were put on slate banks and were called, they were called uh, breaker boys and slate pickers. And uh, my, uh, as you can see, I have a hand that's uh, uh, four fingers off. My father's hand uh, was badly damaged on the slate bank. Uh, there were no gloves. They had no uh, anything to cover their hands. And they were badly, their hands were badly cut. Uh, as a result of those years of uh, the tremendous fierce propaganda against the mine workers and the Mala Maguires, that it was almost unheard of if you would associate. But over the years, oh, I always felt, and my brothers and everybody else, that it was a proud thing that our grandfather was a Mala Maguire. We considered him in the same fashion. He was convicted, tried with the rest of them, and he was sentenced to prison for seven years. And he'd done seven years. He'd come out of prison uh, half-blinded. He came out of prison, and the mine workers, who were again uh, Irish, uh, they gathered together their strength politically, and through their collective strength politically and their background being Irish, they made him a county judge. He couldn't read or write, but anybody with the name uh, with a Welsh background or had a Welsh name like Davis, uh, Ed, uh, Davy Davis, or Eddie Edwards, or Willie Williams. All those kind of people seemed to take sides. They were the mine bosses. The Welsh owned the, the mines. The English owned the mines. And the Irish were the laborers.
my great-grandfather was John Jackie Ho, who was uh, legally murdered by the combination of the, the uh, coal interest and the uh, Pinkerton detectives and the coal and iron police for a crime he never committed on uh, December 18th of 1878. I should say he was hanged on, on December 18th of 1878 for a crime that had taken place over 16 years before, back in 19, or 1862. Uh, even though he had produced evidence that he was nowhere near the scene and other people admitted being involved in the conspiracy and the plot to actually throw stones and eventually beat with a swingle tree, which is a form of a branch of a tree, uh, one Franklin Langdon, and that the actual murder had confessed to it, uh, the authorities refused to admit the testimony and did not make the, uh, the people who had the evidence available. So that there was a contrived plot to uh, get rid of Mr. Kehoe, only for the simple reason that it was a labor union which he was involved in, and uh, as made known later on and many years later by Franklin Gowan, the head of the uh, coal interest, he spent over $4 million, which if, if you can fathom what that amount of money would be today, when you're, when you're talking in the area of 1862 to 1878, uh, to break up what he considered to be one of the most unscrupulous labor unions and trade unions in the United States. So uh, we fortunately have been able to prove 100 years later the innocence of uh, Jack Kehoe, and I'm sure we eventually will prove the innocence of many of the other 19 men who were hanged. The alleged leader of the Molly Maguires was John Kehoe, who was a native of uh, County uh, uh, Wexford or Wicklow, I'm, I don't recall which, but Kehoe was a very substantial person. He was the Democratic High Constable of Girardville. He was a leader in the Working Men's Benevolent Association, which was the precursor of the Knights of Labor, which was the precursor of the United Mine Workers. He uh, uh, was a, a very uh, strong and effective person, and he was the person that uh, the mine interest knew they had to remove. Now, it wasn't bad enough that they rigged the juries, that they changed the law to change uh, the area from which uh, the jurors were selected, that they systematically excluded Catholics from the jury, and that they handpicked the judge, who was a political opponent of the miners, to preside over the trials. They also allowed a man by the name of Benjamin Franklin Gowan, who was an orangeman, uh, to uh, act as special prosecutor. Gowan was the president of the Reading Coal and Iron Company. Uh, Gowan himself tried the cases against the miners. Uh, he was assisted by a gentleman by the name of General Albright, who wore his full military uniform during the trials. He wore the uniform to suggest to the jurors that he was the true America, that he was the true sense of justice, and that these Irish were uh, radical ragamuffins that uh, had a dance at the end of a rope. It's a very sorry page in Pennsylvania history. It's, it has unfortunately not been fully scrutinized until now because uh, the Irish at that time were absolutely uh, aghast at the magnitude of the br brutality. I mean, it made, it made Cromwell uh, look like a, um, a generous spirit. Uh, an examination of the court records today shows overwhelming evidence that would exonerate Kehoe. However, when people attempted to testify and offer character uh, witnesses or offer uh, any type of evidence on behalf of the miners, they were fired from their jobs in the mine, they were, they were blacklisted, they were cut off at the company store, they were actually evicted from the company homes, and some of them, including uh, an 18-year-old girl and a, a woman in her, in her 20s, were actually taken from the one courtroom where they attempted to testify, immediately taken to another courtroom, 
convicted of perjury by the same type of kangaroo court and put in the Pottsville prison. Now that is the type, and all the time these trials were going on, the, um, uh, the National Guard uh, was outside, um, thousands of soldiers. Uh, the National Guard had been used in Pennsylvania as a uh, strike-breaking mechanism through the 1930s. In Gerardville, Hibernian House, the pub owned by Black Jack Kehoe, is now in the possession of his great-grandson, Joe Wayne. Joe was special assistant to the state treasurer of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in Harrisburg and town chairman of his local borough in the Democratic Party interest. In Hibernian House, he showed us numerous photographs and mementos of Black Jack, and he brought us to many of the places associated with his great-grandfather and the other Molly Maguires. We're now standing at the gravesite and the monument to my great-grandfather, John Jackie Hall, from County Wicklow, died December 18th of 1878, I should say legally murdered, aged 41 years, 5 months and 15 days. He's buried here with his wife, Mary Ann Kehoe, who preceded, succeeded him in death nine years later. Or seven years later, I'm sorry, my, my master is getting bad. 1885. Yes, seven years. And I, the stone I, has, has been redone recently, though, it, The it? stone was knocked off its moorings, and we have recently, through the efforts of a Charles McCarthy, who was a historian who wrote the book, The Great Molly Maguire Hoax, whereby he took the stand that Kehoe was an innocent man based on information he had gathered and what the family had given, and uh, through the efforts of my uh, uncle, Jack McDonald, my mother's brother, and a grandson of Jack Kehoe, and they, they made arrangements to clear out the cemetery, and I might say they did an excellent job. It was all overgrown. Great deal of tourism here now to, uh, to finally pay tribute to the men for, uh, of a labor movement. But I did remark earlier that I thought I should say again here, that, uh, Frank, is the fact that this is the first time I visited the grave since uh, I was successful in obtaining the pardon and the Declaration of Innocence by the Honorable Governor Milton Shapter in January of 79. And uh, somewhat of a moving experience. In the same cemetery in Tamaqua are the graves of Charles and Ellen O'Donnell, victims of the Wigan's Patch Massacre, of Joe Wayne's great-great-grandfather Manus O'Donnell from the parish of Doe in County Donegal, and of two Campbells from Glenties, Alexander and John, both convicted Mollies. Alexander, in fact, having been hanged in 1877 for his part in the murder of mine superintendent John P. Jones in 1875. We're presently at the marker for the Campbell family, and this is where it is believed that Alex Campbell, who was also hanged, is buried. Uh, you'll notice the, there are no names referencing uh, the fact that he is here, but uh, historically he was supposed to put it a grave where they, they, didn't, have, they didn't mark it. Uh, it was questionable as to whether or not some of these gentlemen were even buried on consecrated ground because of the church's uh, attitude that they were excommunicated for being along, belonging to a secret society. Uh, he had a brother also, John Campbell, who was charged, and an attorney by the name of attorney brother by the name of Anthony Campbell who had represented him. About 20 miles from Tamaqua is Pottsville Jail, where the Molly Maguire prisoners were confined. The small, dark, vaulted cells in which they awaited trial or execution or long-term sentences are still to be seen. Supposingly, these were the two cells that were the Molly Maguires were kept in. These cells originally are used for disciplinary cells. And uh, uh, a person that was found to be a problem in the prison or caused trouble, they were usually shackled to the floor here. And as you can see, there's four, four shackles. They were shackled face down on the floor. There were no uh, 
no uh, beds in the cells at all. They had a, they laid straw on the floor, and that's where they were kept all day long. Uh, Obviously, the the arms would be pretty far apart. Right, they were shackled face down on the floor, and uh, there were four to a cell at this time. Basically, the cell is uh, there's one small window in it for the light that was what light came in. There were no lights at this time. Also, there was no heat. No toilet facility. No either. toilet facility. When a person had to go, to, when an inmate had to go to the to the bathroom, they there, were, the they there were two troughs on both sides of the cell, and there was running water. And uh, as the as they went to the bathroom, you know, the water. Water ran these along these troughs. There's yeah. two channels here, yeah, right? Let me, let me explain something in here, if, if I if I may. When the monkey holds, monkey holds a. Uh, wife and family would come down to see them. They, had the, they did have, at that time, I believe they brought a cot in for them. Uh, he was held in here from the time he was initially tried back on June 16th of 1877 for something like a, a year before that. Uh, he was initially arrested along with uh, John Morris's grandfather uh, for an atrocious assault with intent to kill on William Thomas, alias Bully Bill Thomas. That was another questionable charge, which uh, subsequently we find a no fruit to it. But when he was initially brought in here, they did shackle him, but they didn't have him face down. And he was given a break. Uh, he wasn't here for he wasn't here to be uh, uh, penalized for uh, disruption of anything. But they did have shackles around his legs and around his hands, with chains running through the, the bolts on the floor itself. Uh, as you did mention, Mike mentioned the fact that the only light you had was from a small window in the rear of the cell. You had no heat. You had no light. You had no toilet facilities whatsoever and yet very few visitors. I am uh, Richard Russell. I'm the district attorney of Schuylkill County, Pennsylvania. Uh, last fall, uh, after the petition was filed uh, on behalf of Jack Kehoe for his post-death uh, pardon, uh, I was asked to give an opinion to the Board of Pardons. At that time, I didn't realize that the record uh, of the case was available. This is the transcription of the case was available. And uh, after I received that letter, I inquired of our clerk of courts and then found that the original record of the trial, the original transcript, was still available. So I obtained it and read it and uh, was uh, surprised at some of the rulings, etc., in the case. But uh, there was no doubt in my mind that uh, uh, the evidence of the Commonwealth was shaky at best, and uh, certainly if similar type evidence had been given to me to arrest a man for murder today, I would never do it. They were presently in courtroom number one of the Schuylkill County Courthouse in Pottsville, Pennsylvania, overlooking the rear entrance into the Schuylkill County Prison, where we just visited uh, Jackie Ho and the other Molly McGuire's cells in the dungeons. Here, from the vantage point we have here, you are taking the same view that the juries would have had when uh, they would stop a trial and remark about the number of uh, Molly McGuire's being brought to justice, and they would purposely parade men shackled together in and out those doors uh, with the intent of prejudicing the mind of, of the juries, that the complete roundup of this uh, illegal organization was taking place. Now, in the front of the room, 
you could see the, uh, if you remember seeing any paintings or pictures in the various books you've read, that is where the Pinkerton detective uh, would sit there with his foot up on the railing as he testified, and my great-grandfather would be uh, in the forefront uh, while on trial. Uh, you had it still be the same layout, more or less, as oh, it yes. is today? Yes, uh, except for modern furnishings, uh, the new carpeting and so forth, which I might add is attributable to the Democratic administration of 1975. <laughs> 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 which we, we have around us here. Uh, we're, we're sitting here also <laughs> right now with the distinguished the Honorable uh, Joseph Lynch, Court of Deeds, and Honorable John Flannery, the Register of Wills of Schuylkill County. Uh, former running mates of mine, and uh, hopefully both will be elected to their respective positions, Mr. Lynch against the recorder of deeds, and Mr. Flannery to the uh, county commissioner's seat, for not one term, but at least two, anyhow. Well, this is a complete reversal of uh, the history of 100 years ago, almost. I'll tell you how much of a reversal it was. In uh, February 18th of 1975, I was sworn in as county controller uh, in the same courtroom, I stood in virtually the same spot as my great-grandfather stood a hundred years ago when he was found guilty of murder in the first degree of Franklin Langdon. The ironies, not only of the fact that I was in the same courtroom being appointed to a uh, respected position in the uh, county government, but also the fact that the judges sat in bank because of the historical occasion in that the president judge of the Court of Common Pleas was one James J. Kern Sr., the chairman of the board of the Reading Coal Company, and a hundred years ago, it was the Reading Coal Company through the uh, president, Franklin Gowan, who prosecuted, or I should say persecuted, uh, my great-grandfather and uh, legally murdered him. There's a large amount of literature available now on the Molly Maguires, much of it based on the reports of the Pinkerton detective, James McParlin, who infiltrated the organisation and seems indeed to have been actively involved as agent provocateur in some of the crimes alleged against the Mollies. But the whole sordid episode has also provided material for fiction and for a film made ten years ago. I had read the books of John O'Hara, in which there are many references to the Mollies. One got a great sense of it, and I ran into the descendants of many of these people, who, in one case a town clerk, in another case a policeman, who had a knowledge, and they were waiting for something to happen. And what did happen was that film that was made by Martin Ritt, which was not a bad film, except that the hero emerges as Richard Harris, who was the Pinkerton agent, a man named MacParlan from South Armagh, although in South Armagh they say he wasn't, that he was from Liverpool, but uh, <laughs> wherever he was from, he was the man who broke up the alleged Molly conspiracy. He had a vested interest in the conspiracy. He engaged in some of the killings that took place, quite clearly, and by sheer accident I ran into his career again in the famous American labor trial of Big Bill Haywood, Western Federation of Miners, who was defended by Clarence Darrow. And lo and behold, the man who worked this court case so that the prosecution would send Haywood to the gallows with two of his colleagues was our friend McParlin. And uh, in this case, he was up against Clarence Darrow, who uh, broke down the witnesses. But it was the same pattern as the Molly Maguires, which would lead one to believe that certainly uh, much the same type of lying and perjury and other things took place. As might be expected in view of their own ruthless methods and the weight of the propaganda machine ranged against them, the Molly Maguires have not had in the past what might be called a very good press. But in recent years all that has changed, and particularly since the posthumous pardon for Blackjack Kehoe one senses in America now a tendency to speak of them even with pride rather than apology. 
Well, my grandfather uh, was a miner all, all his life. The only time he ever saw his father was in the coffin. His father starved to death in a mine accident at uh, Big Mine Run in the late 1880s. My mother's people were miners. They, uh, I uh, really uh, have taken a great deal of gratification from this because uh, all I've been doing, frankly, at a different level is continuing uh, the same fight for social justice and for fairness that uh, they began under much less favorable circumstances a hundred years ago. Now these people who were involved in attempting to organize the Working Men's Benevolent Association and who continued to fight for social justice in the coal mines were really the, the, the martyrs of labor. They performed a, a tremendous uh, task. Uh, I only hope that the, the social conscience uh, at the bar, in the universities, uh, in the media, is beginning to focus on these injustices. I, unfortunately, uh, the Irish have always been uh, an expendable uh, uh, people, uh, and uh, we just never had uh, the opportunity to have the uh, the academic institutions, the media, and what have you bring the same sense of the same quest for social justice to this that they did to other minorities. And I think that uh, maybe that tide has turned, and, and this is going to be looked at much more objectively and, and scholarly. I often feel, you know, these uh, these all these little people that. Uh, had to emigrate from Ireland that really had no choice that had to get out and then what they met in the new world when they went into the hostility and discrimination uh, that something really is necessary uh, to stand up a hundred years afterwards and say that these people not only spoke for their own people but they spoke for labor in general which absolutely had no rights because labor in this country was uh, considered emigrant and uh, th they should be down on their knees every day for giving them the right to be in the country. So they were exploited, something fierce. And uh, I think, uh, as an Irishman, I'm always happy to think that the Molly Maguires stood up and suffered for it.